Great. Well, I'll, I'll just kick things off here. Welcome to the Religion Unplugged podcast. This is Paul Gladder, executive editor with the journalist and author Joshua Prager, who um, has written several books. His latest one is titled The Family Row. It's an, an American story and it's an amazing story. And of all weeks to be talking about it, it's a uh, uh, an important and timely story. I just want to side note, say that, you know, uh, Joshua and I were colleagues once at the journal and I myself and so many others looked up to him as a journalist and a writer and always looked forward to his long form stories coming out. Um, and this book in particular has been a long form story in coming. So but Joshua, before we talk about your book, um, I, I feel like we need to acknowledge the context of this week. And I'm just sort of curious what your, you know, what your life has been like, the kind of questions you've been hearing and fielding um, and the odd dynamic of this book coming out at, uh, in the last year. Yeah, you know, it's a very strange thing, the timing of my book in this week and this year. I, I worked on this book for 11 years. When I started on it, Obama was in his second year in office and Roe seemed nice and secure. Um, and my, we could talk about sort of how I got into the story, but in terms of its timing, you know, when Trump was then elected, I didn't think it was going to be overturned, but I knew that abortion was going to be sort of at the forefront, what he was promising his, his would-be voters and all that. And then, you know, you had the Merrick Garland debacle. And then when Justice Ginsburg died, I, I actually knew where we would end up. It just seemed, my goodness, he now has three justices. And, um, you know, this is actually not a huge surprise to me. And in fact, when, during oral arguments in the Dobbs case a bunch of months ago, um, I just sort of listened to two people in particular, Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett. And it was pretty clear from what they were saying that they were going to overturn Roe if they had the opportunity to. So for me personally, as someone who's just paid very close attention to it, this doesn't come as a shock. And yet, of course, it does. You know, I'm 51 years old. I never thought in my life that we would be here. Um, you know, setting aside my own feelings, being a journalist and an author and working on something for so long and having it come out at exactly the time it came out in September, obviously, but now having it, you know, be there for people at exactly the time when I think it's important to sort of separate fact from fiction. It also actually feels like a great opportunity for me to sort of speak openly um, and, and directly to the issues at hand. There's enormous amount of misinformation that is frankly put forward by both sides. And I think what's turned out to be my role, even though my book is very much about people, um, that's the way I've always mm -hmm. looked at things, approach big stories through people, people rather than politics, for example. My role has turned into sort of, what I keep being asked to do is to provide sort of an honest <laughs> recapitulation of how we got here. Um, and looking back at the last sort of half century. And so that's what mm -hmm. I've been doing and providing. Um, um, and, and just sort of a final thing to say, it's been very gratifying um, and surprising because people on both sides of the issue, um, evangelical leaders to Linda Greenhouse of the New York Times have given my book very good reviews. And I think it's because they see that it really is an honest look at this. Um, I didn't write this book as an activist. I wrote it as a journalist. And so um, that has been very gratifying. I'll just say, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of my fairness, it begins mm -hmm. even with just what to call both sides. I use pro-life and pro-choice, whereas other people don't do that. So that's a little bit on sort of how I've been feeling this. Yeah. Week. Well, and and I really um, recommend people, you know, read and buy this book because exactly what you just said when as I read it, it's um, uh, I think it's fairness, as you called it, is is just remarkable. And I've I've heard from people on both sides who said the exact same thing. Uh, that, that you're hearing so um and that's one thing you know our members of the media project of our network of journalists around the world it's something we uh advocate and so i think this book is a really good case study in how to do deep dive reporting um that that is intellectually uh honest and and fair so let's uh you mentioned though uh you told us a bit of the the the, the uh some of the backstory, but you, you hinted at, you know, what started you on that initial journey? What was the spark where you realized, hey, um, uh, this is a great story, hasn't been told, I wanna do it. And, uh, did, you, and did you set out to, did you realize it was gonna take 10 years? No, 
I mean, you know, I'm laughing because you knew me at the journal when, you know, I wrote about one article <laughs> a year. So things take me a long time. I remember Rupert Murdoch's right-hand man, Thompson, made fun of me, didn't name me, but he said that some people at the paper, their stories have the gestation of a llama. So yeah, I don't know if this is the whole family of llamas, um, but I'll tell you about the spark. Before I do, I want to just say one, one, one thing that I want to say about fairness. You know, it's not even something I aspire to. It's just sort of a natural outgrowth of what I think is the most important role for a journalist. And it's to write about people with empathy. Obviously not if you're like uncovering some war criminal, but if you're diving into a story and you want to be fair, I really try to, you know, get to know these people. And so um, I think fairness is sort of a byproduct of writing about people with empathy. But in terms of how I got into it, it I was in France 11, 12 years ago now. And I was reading an article, I was living there for a year, reading an article in The New Yorker by Margaret Talbot about gay marriage. It was a very good article. And it mentioned in passing about, it mentioned in passing that some plaintiffs are not great for the causes they represent. In this case, it mentioned Norma McCorby, who was Jane Roe, because she famously switched sides from pro-choice to pro-life. And then it mentioned that, again, in passing, I think it was a parenthetical, that she'd actually not had the abortion she sought. Because even though she won the case, a case takes longer than the gestation of a baby. And this big light bulb went off in my head. I've written a lot about secrets and secrecy um, and people connected to history. Um, and I said, oh my goodness, that means someone, somewhere, there is a human being whose conception begat Roe v. Wade. And I just, you know, I read that this child had been um, placed for adoption and I just was sure that somehow he or she would have known who they were, who they'd been born to, the fact that they were, as the pro-life called them, the Roe baby. And so I wanted to find that person. Um, I had that sort of epiphany. It was in um, January, February of 2010. And I reached out to Norma McCorvey, to Jane Roe. I found a priest who could connect me. And, she, and I asked her carefully about this in an email. And she basically, told me to screw off um, unless I was going to pay her. I said, I'm not allowed to pay people for the stories I write. And that was that. Um, I started to learn about her. And I then reached out to a woman who had been her partner. Norma was gay, a partner for many years, a woman named Connie Gonzalez. And um, Norma had left her after Connie had had a stroke only the year before. And I then went to visit Connie. This is, I'm fast forwarding after a few false um, steps. I had tried to find the information about the Roe baby through the lawyer who brokered the adoption. I tried to find it another way and I was unsuccessful. I then went to Connie and on my second trip to Connie in January of 2011, so a year later, she said something amazing to me, the kind of thing that every journalist hopes to hear. She said, well, um, and she was an old woman who'd had a stroke. I was there with her and her caretaker, her niece. And she said to me, you know, this is the home I lived in with Norma for many years. The home is about to be foreclosed on and Norma's private papers are in the garage. They're about to be thrown out. And I said, oh my goodness, do not throw those out. Can I please have them? And so we piled thousands of papers into um, garbage bags. She dumped them into garbage bags. I put them into the trunk of my rental car. And that night when I went through it at three in the morning, I found what I was looking for in one interview. Norma had mentioned um, the, the date of birth of her youngest child, the Roe baby. And it was literally one more month until I found who she was. Wow. Um, at that point, I did not reach out to her directly, the daughter, the Roe baby, because I said to myself, if she doesn't know who she is, who she's been born to, that would upend her life unfairly. So I reached out to the woman who raised her, to her mother. And she said, you know what? Thank you for reaching out to me. She said, we do know about Norma. I didn't even mention Norma. She immediately said that when I asked about the adoption attorney. And she said, my daughter does not wish to speak. And the daughter then told me that. So what I then did was I reached out to find her sisters, the other children, her half sisters, the other children, Norma, though she was gay, she'd had occasional relationships with men. The other children, Jane Rowe had given birth to. And it was about one more year before I found them. And brought them together. They'd always been looking for each other, Jennifer and Melissa. Wow. At that point, I got back in touch with Shelly, the Roe baby, and said, you know what, just so you know, I found your sisters. Here are their here's their information. And she then said, you know what, 
I would like to participate in your project. Wow. wow. So that was the very beginning. And to say one more sentence, it then grew from the, from the children to Norma McCorvey, to Roe v. Wade, to the whole of abortion in America. And by that time, I was so deep into it that I just said, you know, this is a big story. I need to tell it right. Um, and it took me a decade. As a side note, I was curious how your how the literary uh, agent and editor were hanging in during that process of the book evolving. Were they uh, were they okay well, with it? I'll tell you what happened. I had initially thought I would just be writing an article about the Roe baby, finding the Roe baby. So I didn't even approach um, an editor yet. And so by the time I did approach an editor, I sold the book in 2014 after having written a 100-page proposal. By then, I knew what I was proposing. And what I, had, what I was proposing was really looking at the whole of abortion in America. And I can tell you, in order to do so, Norma was this, Jane Roe was this incredible window into abortion in America. Her life wended its way through the lives of all the leaders on both sides. I had her private papers. She, initially, she eventually agreed to participate with me and came to be a very active participant and eager participant. And I surrounded Norma and her daughters with three other central characters who enabled me to tell this much bigger story. One, one was a leader on the pro-choice side, a doctor named Curtis Boyd. Everyone was from Texas. My whole book was based in Texas, which obviously turned out to be perfect for what's going on now. His yeah. name was Curtis Boyd. He was a, a doctor from a very religious family in Texas who started providing abortions pre-Roe and then post-Roe he becomes the largest provider of third trimester abortions in America after his friend, Dr. Tiller, is murdered. And he's a remarkable window into the world of the pro-choice. On the pro-life side, I chose someone named Dr. Mildred Jefferson, the first black woman to graduate from Harvard Medical School, who then becomes really the architect of the pro-life movement. No one knew anything about these people. Uh, she was a hoarder. Um, I found an FBI file. People looked at her on the pro-life as sort of the saint who had left the heights of medicine to go to cater to the unborn, as they said. But really, the reason she did that was because she had suffered intense racism and misogyny, was not able to practice surgery as she wished to. And then the last person was Linda Coffey, a remarkable character, the lawyer who first filed Roe and represented Jane Roe. No one knew anything about her because her co-counsel, Sarah Weddington, had taken all the credit. But it was really Linda who was the, who was the matriarch of this case. And I found her, she was living in a home without heat, living on food stamps in East Texas, um, sort of remarkable people. And so these mm. people, seven people, Norma, her three daughters, and the three people around them enabled me to tell this larger story. And they were all sort of, the thing with Norma was, the very same things that, that made her life so complicated and made abortion so difficult for her and fraught for her were the same things that make it, in my opinion, and I argue, I think persuasively for America. And it's basically this seeming irreconcilability of sex and religion, seeing sex as something illicit and, 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 and dangerous and wrong and sinful. And then, um, and she was from a very religious home and obviously we have our puritanical roots. So this was the larger story I was telling, you know, the old cliche, the macro through the micro. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I want to come back to those religion themes and, and Norma's piece of it, but, um, that that part of I mean some of some of our listeners might have seen the uh, a big Atlantic story by by Joshua on uh, uh, really focusing on Shelley the baby Roe right but um, I vaguely knew that um, Jane Roe or Norma McCorvey had switched sides or something but before your book came out I I did not know that there was not an uh, uh, that her baby lived you know that there wasn't an abortion how many Americans have you found um, knew those things. And also, um, as I saw, that this was, you had several sort of scoops or new revelations in the book, which you just described, but the one about Shelley and, and the identity of baby Roe um, and Shelley's speaking, that was that the biggest scoop and the fact that you, you tracked all these family members down? Yeah, I would say in terms of your first question, almost no one myself included, realized that there was a Roe baby. Um, she was a sort of point of fascination for some on the pro-life side because they saw her or him, they didn't know who the child was, as the sort of living incarnation, the argument against abortion. They could say, ha, if, you know, if Roe had been law back then, you would have murdered this human being. It's a sort of very, you know, very powerful thing to say. But aside from them, no one really realized this. Even I spoke to the clerks 
on the, the justices who, who wrote Roe on the Supreme Court, they didn't realize there was a Roe baby. Um, it's sort of a simple thing when you think about it. Hey, of course there was one because a case takes longer than a pregnancy. But until I sort of came across that mention and had that idea and went to look for it, I don't think people realize this. And she was a very powerful way into this story. So I do think um, that that was the, the biggest scoop, you know, to answer your question. Um, it got a lot of attention, um, but there were a lot of scoops along the way. Basically, Roe is by far the most well-known case the Supreme Court has ever argued. Um, it is, you know, I quote a, a constitutional scholar saying that Ronald Workin undoubtedly the best known case, and they've had you know, like 30,000 cases in, in 200 plus years. But for all of its renown and all of its divisiveness, nobody knew anything about the central characters in the case. And that to me was crazy. And when I realized that, I said, wait a minute, I need to go find these people. Mm -hmm. Humanize something that affects a majority of our country. Because tens of millions, there have been 50 or 60 million abortions performed since Roe. And obviously, it's not just the woman or girl who has one. It's also... You know, her partner and her family and her every we're all connected in some ways to someone who had an abortion whether we know it or not it's so stigmatized yeah. we don't talk about it but to realize that you know i could sort of humanize the story i could bring the people behind it to life that was a very exciting revelation for me um i didn't know anything about abortion i didn't know anything about roe and you know there are there are scores of characters in my book but i'd like to think it's actually not very complicated reading. It's a real narrative. Um, and, you know, Norma is this sort of central focus. And through her life, little by little, you just sort of follow the story as it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. Well, and talk, talk for us a second about Norma as a character. And and um, uh, as we learn in the book, you know, it looks like there was like a film made about her and she wrote at least one book. And so um, why was she as you were wading through the different stuff that had been written on her or by her, why was she fertile for a new profile and deep dive? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, she's the most complicated person I've ever written about. I haven't said that before, but I realize it's true because in addition to everything else, how complicated her life was, she was a compulsive liar. So the two books that she wrote or, you know, had ghost written for her on the pro-choice side and the pro-life side, they're complete and utter fiction. Um, everything she says is nonsense. Um, she basically was trying to come up with a story that befitted her famous pseudonym, some dramatic story. So to give you examples, I mean, she says that she was raped four different times. She talks, she says her child was kidnapped. She says she was beaten. She says, and over and over and over again, she says, you know, to give a few specific examples, she's in Catholic school and she says she was raped by a nun. Well, the truth is, that she had a consensual sort of experience with a woman who was going to become a nun. She says her mother kidnapped her child from her. The truth was that her first child, she was so desperate to not, to not mother this child that she begged her mother to adopt the child. She says that when she wanted to have an abortion, she went to a clinic and it had just been shuttered and it quote unquote reeked of death and there was dried blood on the floor. The truth was that um, she found the clinic, but she simply couldn't afford it. It was $500 and she didn't have that money. She couldn't afford to fly to California for an abortion either where abortion was legal at the time. And in all of these things that occurred to me, she was reimagining herself, not as a sinner, as she saw someone who wanted to have an abortion, someone who um, um, had had sex with a woman, someone um, who um, had had, what was the other example I, I gave? I, I mentioned the clinic and the, anyway, always reimagining herself, not as a sinner, but as a victim. And that had a, that went back again to her childhood. And, you know, I was able to sort of bring her to life. You want, why was she so compelling? Well, aside from the fact that, I mean, her story is unbelievably dramatic. She, I found all of these, she was a prostitute. She was a drug dealer. She was, you know, all of these sort of dramatic things, but the then sort of banal day-to-day -day things were so moving and poignant. Um, a person overwhelmed by life who was raised in this incredibly difficult home who had these children and, and gave them up, relinquished them to adoption and then basically just was desperate for an abortion and couldn't have one. And 
as I, you know, using her documents that I found, going back and finding hundreds of people to interview, to bring her past to life and corroborate everything, she then helped me herself. And mm. she was this unbelievably sort of remarkable window into this enormous national problem that we have, this war. Um, and because she had switched sides, her life involved the leaders on both sides. It's unbelievable. And so I was able to sort of hold both sides to account and, and tell the story honestly. Um, so she was a remarkable person for me to find. I was with her for four years, 2013 to 2017, with her when she actually died. Um, mm. And her family, the children, took me into their lives. And um, it was a remarkable mm. experience for me. So um, you, I mean, you show these kind of these swings uh, and there's a couple swings here. So one is, I think, political and another is like religion. There's probably other swings for her. But since we're, this is a podcast about religion, um, maybe talk a little, little bit about her religious journeys and forays, what some readers will we'll discover and I, and I wonder too if um, either in part one or six which are titled sec one's called sex and religion part six is born again if we even want to read like a one page or two page sampling at some point here but um, yeah. I've got a few places marked we could go to but um, but maybe describe a little bit of the overview of like what readers will encounter about her religious journey yeah I'm just looking for one thing here to tell you about something. Okay specifically, but yes, I mean, her whole family was defined by these things, sex and religion. So when I discovered Norma and have this idea, I said, well, we need to understand where she comes from. Um, not just sort of look at her life, well, what informed her? So I started looking back at her life and her, and her previous generations in her family. And I went back two generations and I showed that Norma was the third consecutive woman, third consecutive generation in her family to be a woman who at age 17 has an unwanted pregnancy. And because these were from very religious families, first Pentecostal, first Catholic, then Pentecostal, then Jehovah's Witness, you see what an unwanted pregnancy in these families do, what they, what they did to these women. So just to go back one generation, Norma's mother, Mary, is 17 years old, gets pregnant, and this was not even known by most of Norma's family. And she lives in rural Louisiana, and her family is so upset that they make her leave the town. She has to go to the big city of Baton Rouge, give birth to the child, and then they take the child from her and pretend that that child was theirs. And she has to go back to her little house across the Atchafalaya River from where they live and pretend that this child is her niece, not her daughter. Well, mm. that has devastating consequences for her mother, Mary. She becomes an alcoholic. She ends up having, um, she gets married, then has endless sort of partners. Um, the home is a broken home, the home that Norma's being raised in. And then, you know, they become Jehovah's Witnesses for a time. The father, Norma's father, is hoping that this will help the mother, Norma's mother, repent and mend her ways, but it doesn't work out that way. And Norma is sort of in this very depressing home. She then um, struggles, um, uh, chafes against all the rules of being a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, she renounces God when she's a kid. She's sent to home for sort of quote unquote delinquent children after she has a, she's caught having sort of a, um, a sexual encounter with a young girl. You know, she herself was a young girl. They were both like 12, 13. And then she ends up going to Catholic school. She gets married to a man when she's 16. Just everything starts going wrong. And it really, I show, starts three generations back um, with the incompatibility again of sex and religion. Mm -hmm. At the same time, religion was a great comfort for Norma. Um, she was, you know, she ends up finding her way. First, she's born again when she, in, um, in 1995. Um, she's born again through an evangelical minister. She then becomes a Catholic. Um, and though and though she, um, well, I, I should say, you know, she's comforted by the patron saint. She's comforted by the, by the rosary beads and things like that. But the strictures of religion are very hard for her. 
And eventually, when she becomes a born-again Christian, not only is she sort of embraced by the pro-life, but she's made to renounce her homosexuality. That's an incredibly difficult thing for her. So religion was really the most important. It was the defining sex and religion really were the, like, I think I describe it as like the two, like a double helix, the helical strands of her life. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's the same, that same can be said for abortion in America. Yeah, well, and the, with the, uh, you know, again, the thoroughness here, the reporting, it, it kind of took me back to the 90s, like on page uh, 241 through 244, where you're explaining like, well, that, that area you're explaining about Operation Rescue yeah. and the kind of strong beliefs and protests and violence and deep, reli- uh, you know, religious movements around this stuff. And I, I wonder, there, there's a character, Benham. Uh, oh, yeah, Flip Benham, yep. You know, quite something. He was a fascinating one. I don't know if you want to read to give uh, listeners maybe a sample. Sure. I'll just say Flip Benham is the evangelical minister who mm-hmm. who brings Norma into the fold. You know, he's a guy out of central casting. He dyes his hair and whitens his teeth, and he's incredibly charismatic, and and he's very handsome, and he holds his enormous Bible in the air while he speaks, which is this beautiful big leather Bible. And he gave Norma a lot of attention. And her becoming born again was, as I say, religion was a genuine comfort for her. But it was also, in large part, born of the fact that her, her lawyers on the pro-choice side marginalized her. They didn't give her a seat at the table. They didn't like the fact that she wasn't educated. They didn't like how she spoke. And it was depressing. Um, you know, one of the great sort of keys to understanding abortion in America is class. And Norma was in many ways of the class of the people on the other side. And it's not shocking that she ends up with them. So I'll read a little bit on page 242 um, about, about Flip Benham. Um, back in 1973, Benham had welcomed Roe. He had finished his army service that same year as a clerk in Germany. And home in upstate New York, he was, he says, in favor of, quote, anything to overcome the problems we guys got girls into. Benham moved the next year to Florida, where his father bought him a bar in Kissimmee. Suddenly, Benham had, at age 26, not only a college degree and a wife and a daughter, but a bottomless tap. Most nights he drank. Benham became an alcoholic, he says. The next spring, he suggested to his pregnant wife that she have an abortion. She had twins instead. Benham had been a saloon keeper three years when, in 1976, a customer who sold coffee urns invited him to an evangelical church. Benham went. Come 1980, he had closed his bar, graduated as a lay minister from a seminary in Kentucky, and opened a free Methodist church in Dallas. It was in Dallas two years later that Benham heard a minister named Bill Gothard posit that God first became flesh, not when Jesus was born, but when he was conceived. I said, oh my gosh, recalls Benham, children in the womb. Benham had found his calling, the abolition of that which might have killed his twin boys. In 1988, he joined Operation Rescue, co-founding a chapter in Dallas and preaching at his church that abortion was murder. Benham began to protest outside clinics. He was arrested for the first time that October. He had been arrested dozens of times more when in 1992, the local Free Methodist superintendent told him, says Benham, that their church would be a lot better served if I was left without appointment. All but defrocked, Benham turned full-time to fighting abortion. Benham was no Randall Terry. That was the um, previous head of Operation Rescue. He was less apt to rebuke than embrace Handsome in his fifth decade, he beckoned would-be sinners with bright blue eyes and blow-dried hair and holy words that he read from his leather-bound Bible, a book fat and soft as a baby, one journalist noted. The preacher liked to sniff it and hold it aloft and quote from it, too. A favorite passage was Deuteronomy 30.19, Now choose life so that you and your children may live. To choose death was to risk the wrath of God. After Benham was arrested and sentenced to jail in Houston during the 1992 Republican National Convention, Norman Mailer observed that the preacher started praying for the judge to repent or she would be stricken from the face of the earth. Benham says he merely prayed for her to be stricken from office. Behind bars, Benham worried that he and his wife, a nurse expecting their fourth child, might not survive without his pulpit. Abortion earned Benham very little money, just a few hundred dollars that supporters offered him, he says, to keep doing what you're doing. But then, says Benham, the Lord provided. A pastor let him know that a kindred Christian wished to pay him $1,000 for every day he spent in Harris County Jail. 28 days later, Benham exhaled. When that check came in, he says, we realized we can make it through the year. Benham continued his fight, and he soon noticed that many of the women who countered him in abortion clinics were gay. He wondered why. It was true that among advocates of reproductive rights, 
lesbians were overrepresented. I think it comes from a place of feeling passionately about sexual self-determination, notes the history professor Joanna Schoen. But Benham soon determined, he says, that gay women and what he termed abortive women were bound instead by a disregard for God's law. It was just a different colored glove covering the same fist, says Benham, the fist of the devil. In 1980, Jerry Falwell wrote that after abortion, homosexuality was the greatest crisis facing moral Americans. Benham began in 1993 to preach the same, telling that homosexuality was an evil born of the sodomites. But if Benham decried sin, he spoke above all of, he spoke above all of Christian love. He seemed an antidote to the perceptions of violence that still clung to Operation Rescue, and he had just been named its national director when, months later, at a pro-life conference in Chicago in 1994, he, he argued that the Bible did not sanction the murder of abortion providers, an opinion, he said, that left him in the minority among his peers, said Benham. It's sin. It's murder. Benham said the same, of course, of abortion. And that June, at a book signing in a Dallas cafe, he called out to the author, Norma McCarvey. You ought to be ashamed of yourself, he said. You are responsible for the deaths of 35 million babies. Benham kept Norma in sight. She was, after all, right there in Dallas. And in early 1995, when the lease of his Dallas office was due to expire, Benham had his secretary, Rhonda Mackey, go look for a new one right next to an abortion clinic. Oh, thank you. I love this, the passage and these characters. And you hinted, so um, both sides were trying, no, so shifting to the political, um, both sides, the pro-life and pro-choice were, yes, you know, of course wanted Norma on their side. And how many times did she switch? Um, and, and, and where did she end up at the end of her life? And what's your, you know, your, your take on her as a, a figure who is, undulating between these two groups um yeah it's such a she ends, in her life she ends up in terms of her switches before i sort of tell you where she ended up so she's basically you know she she gets pregnant 1969 becomes the plaintiff 1970 the case is decided 1973 and she doesn't she doesn't have anything to do with anyone involving abortion um on either side until 1981 she goes to a meeting um of a gathering of pro-choice women in dallas she ends up really becoming an advocate or wanting to become an advocate in the late 1980s. Gloria Allred, the celebrity lawyer, brings her to California. And from 1989 to 1994, she sort of fights on the pro-choice side. But as I say, they really marginalized her. They didn't give her a seat at the table. She becomes a born-again Christian in 1995, baptized by Flip Benham. And he trots her out as a, really a trophy of the pro-life. And um, she just sort of adopts you know, what he's saying. Abortion is murder, etc. She then becomes a Catholic in 1998. And it's about five years after that, that she sort of starts to resist being um, a puppet really of either side. And she ends up dying in 2017, having spent the last almost decade of her life kind of removed from the, from the issue, um, really having pushed these people away because she was sick of being used. You know, despite the fact that when she was a pro-choice advocate and a pro-life advocate, despite the fact that she sort of parroted what she was told to say, um, you know, parroted the leaders on both sides. So when she's pro-choice, she's saying abortion ought to be legal through viability. Um, on the other side, abortion is murder from conception. She actually had a very strong personal opinion. She knew where she stood. <clears throat> and I can tell you what's remarkable about her. Not only did she represent the majority of Americans, as I say, in terms of this seeming incompatibility of sex and religion that I think is really at the, you know, the foundation, the, the root of our problems mm -hmm. with abortion in this country. But she also came to a, a similar conclusion. So the great majority about abortion, the great majority of Americans, the enormous sort of majoritarian middle ground is that people feel abortion ought to be legal but only through the first trimester of pregnancy. Support for abortion dwindles by each trimester, but there's an overwhelming um, percentage of support. It's in the 60s, people who feel that abortion ought to be legal through the first trimester. And this was exactly what Norma herself thought. And I know this because she said it at three remarkable times in her life. The first time she says it publicly is that during the first interview she ever gives, a few months after Roe's, um, a few days, excuse me, after Roe, the Roe ruling in 1973, she's interviewed by a little Baptist newsletter. As an aside, it's remarkable. Linda Coffey, the lawyer who represented her, was a religious Baptist. But back then, the Southern Baptist Convention was pro-choice. No one realizes that. So she was able oh, to wow. 
be at home in her church even while she was you know helping to legalize abortion well norma says then that she she feels strongly that abortion ought to be legal but only through the first trimester she then even though previously when she wanted an abortion it was after the first trimester then after she becomes born again she's on uh nightline with ted koppel and to the sort of horror of all of her new friends in the Operation Rescue side, she says the same thing on national TV. She says, yes, I'm now a member of Operation Rescue, but I believe abortion ought to be legal through the first trimester. You know, they say, all of her colleagues say, oh, she's a baby Christian. She's not sort of comfortable. She doesn't know what she's saying, but she knew exactly what she was saying. And then of course she's giving talks and paid to give talks and she stops doing that. And then the last time she says it is over and again with me at the end of her life, uh, when I was with her in the hospital, um, um, literally leading right up to her death. And she felt very strongly about this. She said, yes, I don't feel that abortion ought to be sort of a means of birth control, as she said, but she felt that abortion ought to be legal through the first trimester. And in fact, that is what, that is often the law um, in, in countries in Western Europe, for example, where the cutoff is much earlier than it is here in this country with Roe. But the great difference is unlike in this country where there are endless obstacles put in the way of the girl or the woman who wishes to have an abortion. She has to get consent. She's made to sort of see an ultrasound. She has to be told by the doctor that the, that abortion causes cancer and on and on and on. In those countries, most of them, France, Switzerland, and others, even though the cutoff is earlier, the state helps you. Abortion is available almost everywhere. It's affordable or free, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, that was what Norma believed. Mm -hmm. So, and that brings us to, um, uh, you know, the last few questions here before we wrap up our time. I'm curious back to the present and you know, obviously we have a, this week we have a leaked uh, opinion from Justice Alito that suggests that the, uh, the Supreme Court is going to overturn uh, Roe v. Wade. And this is the, the decision and, and the characters in your book relate to this I mean, as you noted, 50 years, it's kind of defined, those of us in Generation X, it's this case more than any other has kind of defined our lifetime in terms of new laws and rules and, and shifts. Um, I'm kind of wondering, like, so if this, this case happens, does it change, how, how does it change Roe? You know, in Roe and sort of its legacy in our minds, and, 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 and then what, and what does it kind of mean to your story of documenting the family of, of Roe and, and Norma? In these characters. Yeah, you know, there's an argument among people on both sides of this issue about whether Roe is to blame for the situation we find ourselves in. Like, did it poison our politics, as so many people contend mm. on the conservative side? Well, it's complicated. The people who say that it's Roe's fault can point to the fact that pre-Roe, to give one example, Ronald Reagan, who was the pro-choice governor of California at that time, signs into law liberalizing abortion and it has broad bipartisan support his law mm -hmm. people on the other side can say hey it started to get politicized and republicanized opposition to abortion pre-row um patrick buchanan who was an advisor to nixon tells nixon in 1971 you know what you have a policy right now where abortion is legal in military hospitals you need to sort of bite your lip and look into the camera and say that you've been giving it thought of you've had a change of heart. And, and the reason he wanted him to do that was there were votes to be won among left-leaning Catholics. Hmm. So he does that. So it is true, absolutely true, that Roe galvanized those who were opposed to it. And it did inflame this issue. But it also, the seeds were planted pre-Roe. But anyway, I mention all that because it now is the like you said, the issue of our of our generation, you know, it is the thing that sort of politicians most have to sort of come out on one side or another. It, it determines, um, you know, which justices are picked and to go to the Supreme Court. It has really poisoned our politics. It's become an enormous issue. It is the tail wagging the dog. It's a big problem. And it was, you know, the overwhelming goal of those opposed to Roe to overturn it. And for 50 years, they have fought in a million ways to sort of chip away at it. At first, they wanted to overturn it in one fell swoop. 
there was an idea to introduce something called a personhood amendment, which would recognize a fetus as a human being, which would then make, of course, abortion illegal. That didn't work. And so little by little, they chipped away at it in a million different ways. And now, because really of Donald Trump and the legacy, you know, his greatest or his most horrible legacy, depending on how you look at it, is our Supreme Court. He appointed three justices. It was obviously the debacle with the Merrick Garland situation. And then when Justice Ginsburg died, um, he had this third pick. The court, it was simply a numbers game. And unfortunately, you know, you only need five justices to sort of um, be able to change a law. Um, and that is exactly what has happened here. Mm -hmm. what, what, what is going to happen now is that the law, the issue of abortion is going to go back to each state for that yep. state to decide for themselves. But if people yep. think that this is now going to be, you know, um, yeah. somehow less fraud in our country, they're crazy. Um, yeah. As polarized as we are now, it's going to become insane. And as is always the case, which is so sad, it is the poor and often women of color who are going to not have their reproductive rights. You yeah. Know, people who had money just back in the pre-row, they were able to get an abortion, go to California, go to Mexico, go to some private clinic. People who don't have money won't have that luxury. And it's going to become a truly, truly divided country. Well, and as we, I'm sure you're getting a lot of questions this week on, on various, you know, there's like, you know, several kind of big themes, you know, how, who, who leaked and all that. And that, to me, the, the interesting one to ask you about, though, is, um, uh, you know, uh, which you alluded to, if power shifts back to the states and we're seeing maps in the newspaper of which states are going to go pro, pro-life or pro-choice and their policies and law, we've already seen a couple doing that. I mean, um, I guess my, my two big questions is, do we think do you think a reversal of Roe will 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 last very long at the federal level? And if it does, you, you mentioned things will get ugly, but I'm wondering like blue states become bluer, red states become redder. What if it if it doesn't get reversed again at the federal level, I wonder what we start to see. Uh, what kind of what, what ugliness looks like at the state level? Do we will people start moving to various states? Will we see um huge tectonic geographic shifts or demographic. Well, I think it's going to happen now. And I think this is going to be, you know, if in fact the court does overrule it, which it looks like, I think this is now going to remain the law. It's very complicated to change things on a legislative level. You know, one side does it, the other side will do it. I don't see that happening. I think there will be efforts to try. What I do think will happen is what you sort of said. Blue states becoming bluer, red states becoming redder. You already have, in effect, what they call these trigger laws. You're going to see that the moment Roe is overturned, a dozen states saying that abortion is illegal from the point of conception, no exceptions for rape, incest. I mean, truly extreme. Um, in the end, and there are organizations like the Center for Reproductive Rights that explain to us which way the countries are going to go. It's the states. It's going to be almost exactly divided evenly, half and half. Now, what's going to happen is you're going to have states that are where abortion is legal, that are going to be setting up clinics, let's say, right on a border next to another state. But there are enormous efforts are already underway by those who oppose Roe to make it illegal, as crazy as this sounds, for a woman to leave her state to go get an abortion in another state. There are efforts underway to make it illegal for a woman to get pills, to have a medical abortion. You know, um, up until 10 weeks of pregnancy, you can take two pills that in the overwhelming majority of cases will help you to have an abortion. Women are going to end up being prosecuted. It's going to be crazy um, and, and, um, and is going to become a really divided, it already is obviously. The divisions that are now in place are going to only deepen. I'm very pessimistic about this. Abortion, for various reasons, was perfectly suited. You know, abortion is the same everywhere in the world. All of your listeners in different countries, mm -hmm. women have abortions there too. But it's only in our country that it has truly created a civil war. Mm -hmm. And there are reasons for that. There are these sort of um, American traditions of feminism and individualism. And of course, there are this sort of, again, to get back to it, the conservatizing of sex and the sort of, you know, evangelicalism here that we have that um, everything has become politicized and absolutized over the last 50 years. And I don't know how it ends. Um, it's a very depressing situation. Mm -hmm. And, 
you know, just to say one thing, people now just say, oh, oh, religion opposes abortion. Well, I, one of the things I point out in my book is actually it wasn't always that way. Even the Catholic Church, it was only in 1917 that the Catholic Church said that all abortion, you know, that any woman sort of having an abortion um, is excommunicated, that abortion is completely forbidden from conception. Um, that happened only in 1917. For all but three of the previous 700 years, there was a division the church recognized between abortions pre and post quickening, point at roughly 16, 17 weeks when the, you can start to sort of feel the fetus moving. I mention that because we think of everything now as just sort of the way it's always been, but no, this arc, the problems in our country were the result of choices and decisions that human beings made. They seized upon this issue um, for their own gain. And now um, we are paying it a deep, deep price. Yeah, and well, early in the book too, for listeners, um, you know, Joshua, you get into all the way back to St. Augustine and, and yeah. you know, tons of history and context here. For those of us who kind of, you know, grew up amid picket signs, whether you're on the, you know, pro-life picket signs or pro-choice picket signs right now in front of the Supreme Court, um, I feel like there's a weariness of the war, you know, yeah. Um, and and right. I really think like this book, reading about the people and the facts and lives and kind of the context to me was, I was uh, a bit surprised when I opened this, how how fast and interesting it is to read. And, and somehow it's almost therapeutic to uh, to this broader policy fight going on. But I, my, my sort of last question about the book and then one more about you, but the last question about the book is how, um you know, how are her children, how are Norma's three children doing and, and other key characters since your book has come out? and all that's going on. I'm just kind of curious, how are the humans yeah. that we learn about that are still alive, how are they doing? Um, I'll, I'll answer that. I want to first just say thank you for the kind words. I really appreciate that. And one one sentence also, just as Roe galvanized those opposed to it, overturning Roe is going to galvanize those who believe in um, a, a right to choose. So that is an important thing. And in some ways, I think the pro-life sort of don't know what's coming um, they might not care, but it's going to be seismic, the reaction to this. Um, in terms of the the people in the book, so Norma died in 2017. You have her three children. Um, Shelly, the Roe baby, went on television on CBS. She talked about how she was glad to no longer be carrying this secret. And she has become close with one of her two sisters, with Jennifer, the middle child. And, but she was very clear in that interview that she does not want to be used as a pawn by either side. All three of the daughters were pro-choice to a point. Um, and I'm very thankful that Shelley seems, she's, you know, just to say something direct, these are complicated and often troubled people. They've had a very difficult lives. They had difficult genetic inheritances from their mother. And it's difficult also to be born to Norma McCormick, to Jane Roe. But I believe that the book for her in particular, it was very good to sort of get this out. Melissa, the oldest one, is the only one of the daughters who really sort of wishes now, she was the only one who knew Norma beforehand, and she really wishes to sort of have her voice heard. She's the only one who knew Norma, and she's, she's doing interviews. Mm. And she also feels like this is her story too. She has a lot to say, and so, um, for example, all those papers that I found, they ended up at the Schlesinger Library at Harvard, and she asked me to have copies made for her so she could have them. She sees this as not only a national issue, but as her own personal story. Mm. You know, Mildred Jefferson is dead. She was dead before I started the book. Curtis Boyd, the abortion provider, I mean, my God, he's sort of at the heart of the storm. He, his clinic in Texas is going to be shuttered, but he still has his clinic in New Mexico. And, um, you know, I think he will become he will remain really one of the fathers of the pro-choice movement. Uh, more mm -hmm. than anyone, it was his sort of attitudinal shift on abortion as seeing it from something that as President Clinton said, it's ought to be safe, legal, and rare to something that ought to, that is only a social moral good. He now represents, he now speaks for millions. Though so he really is sort of, he's in his eighties. He's a very important person. The most moving sort of thing for me is looking at Linda Coffey. This is a woman who was a true recluse. She hadn't been interviewed in a generation when I found her. Um, and she's had a difficult life. And she has, you know, as I say, she's very poor um, and sort of history forgot her. 
And in the last week, she has given various interviews. She wrote an article for the New Republic. She's been taken out to dinner. She's been seen. And I find that very moving, that she's able to sort of take pride in what she sees as the sort of great achievement of her life. Yeah, there was a telling detail somewhere about her that, you know, as soon as the case was over, you know, she never spoke to the other lawyer or the other lawyer never spoke to her again. She seemed to be cast aside. So that's that's remarkable that uh, yeah. and good to hear. So, um, uh, you know, I've uh, so, been so grateful here to hear more about this book and share it with other people uh, about it. Um, now, are you working on any new projects you want to talk about or just tell people about if they've enjoyed this book or want to want to find more of your projects or are you still just focusing on speaking about this one and marketing or uh, just telling the story yeah so i'll tell you this book so exhausted me um the people in it were so difficult to write about the issue is so complicated and fraught that i said to my wife like i am never doing this again it killed me of course though i'm a journalist i love my job and in recent weeks i've been thinking about what else i might do um, and I'll tell you three things. So first, I wrote an article that I've been wanting to write since I knew you um, at the journal. I've been wanting to write this. I discovered this in 1999. I have a fun story. I think it will be in the Atlantic in the fall. It's connected to affirmative action. The Supreme Court will be probably getting rid of that. There's a case that has to do with affirmative action in Harvard. And I found a beautiful story that has to do with affirmative action at Harvard Law School um, during World War II. And I'm telling that story. That's written. Um, that's one thing. The second thing is I have been thinking about subjects for my next book. And I am finding myself drawn, despite myself, to another very complicated subject with fascinating um, sort of protagonists I won't mention right now. But that has to do with um, genes and race. Mm. Um, um, and then the last thing is I doing something I never do which is writing about myself. Um, I, I'm a journalist who feels very strongly that journalists and authors insinuate themselves unnecessarily into their work. I'm only in this book when I have to be, where it would be disingenuous for me not to be, like when I bring the daughters together, for example. But there's a tiny little book that I wrote years ago, it was just an ebook that has to do with disability and identity. I was in a bad bus accident years ago, so I walked with a cane. And I'm adding to that little book a few chapters, and it's going to come out, I think, next year. Um, so um, one thing just to say that's very fascinating is I'm sure you found this in your life, we all do, all writers, you see that you're drawn to subjects that you know you can relate to and that sort of um, help you process your own circumstances. And without sort of going into it too much now, I, I'm adding things to this book that in some ways I was working out in writing my big book on Roe v. Wade. Um, mm. So um, that is very cathartic and, um, and, and something I'm looking forward to doing. Well, wonderful to hear and uh, Godspeed on all those projects. I look forward to reading, thank reading those as well. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is part of The Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or The Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at religionmag.